0: Well, good morning, church. Good. It's good to be with you this morning. Our fearless leader, Pastor Tommy, is doing a wedding in Illinois, and so I get to preach the word to you this morning. But before we get to that passage, I want to remind you that after our service today, we're going to have a congregational meeting right in here. And this is going to be a members-only congregational meeting. Usually, we invite anybody to come to see how the church is done, but uh, we're actually voting in 21 new members, uh, which is really amazing. Um And we'll be voting on the Greenwood lead pastor and elder, so we encourage you to come to that. But everybody is invited back tonight at 5 o'clock for our worship-based prayer night where we'll be praying for those uh, new members and other things going on in our church. With that, let's pray before we open God's Word. Lord Jesus, we have sung some incredible things this morning already. Lord, we look at ourselves and we know that apart from you, God, we cannot earn ourselves a place with you. So, Lord God, as we open your word and we look to see Jesus and who he is, Lord, I just ask God that you'd give us understanding, give us humility. Lord, we know we need even your Holy Spirit to help us understand what this word says. So, Lord, be with us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was early January and... Jessica and I were sitting down uh, for a lunch in a quaint little Nashville, Tennessee cafe. And after we had ordered food, she turns to me and says, Eric, I'm ready to have that conversation. What conversation were you, what was she ready to have? Well, she was ready to have our defining the relationship talk. Some of you may know it as the DTR. Now, I had pr- been pursuing Jessica uh, long distance for the last few months, and I've even driven down to Chattanooga from Louisville to, to meet her friends so that they can see that I was legit, I wasn't weird or crazy. And it was, it was that point in the relationship, right, where it's time to put some labels on, on what's happening b- between us. Now, I had made my intentions with her very clear from the beginning. I was head over heels for her, uh, but I was just waiting anxiously, anxiously, as you can imagine, to see if she felt the same way. Thankfully, uh, our feelings were mutual, and just a little over four years ago, we had the ultimate DDR, DTR, and uh, we got married. Well, this DTR, you know, this defining the relationship, doesn't just happen in, in dating relationships, right? It also happens in our spiritual lives. I'm sure many of you uh, remember a moment when you knew it was time to define your relationship with Jesus. You no longer could claim that you were searching because you couldn't deny the hold that Jesus had on your heart, and you saw that you had no desire to go back to the life that you used to live. Like the Apostle Peter, you said, where else am I going to go? For you, Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. Just last week, we had three people get baptized here at Castleton, and they made it very clear where they stood with Jesus. Well, for Christians today, we are regularly being asked to define our relationship about something else. We are being asked what we believe about the scriptures what is our relationship about god's word especially our view of the old testament you don't have to look very far to find someone accusing christians right of being inconsistent or duplicitous when we quote the bible to defend our views on sexuality or personhood but then disregard the old testament's commands to sacrifice animals or his prohibition to not wear two types of clothes with different fabrics Or the restrictions to not eat red meat or not to eat shellfish. You know, some of us love to eat red lobster. And we're like, hey, are we being inconsistent here? Even an influential pastor, uh, Andy Stanley, who maybe some of you know, his dad, Charles Stanley, recently told his congregation that we should stop looking and stop asking the question, what does the Bible say about this or that, but rather, what does Jesus say about the matters of life? He says that we should stop looking to the Old Testament, but rather just to the New Testament the new covenant. And so we as Christians have to be ready to have that conversation. The the culture won't let us live in ambiguity about what we believe about the scriptures. We'll have to answer questions like, does the Old Testament law really have a place in my life in the 21st century? You know, are the Ten Commandments still binding upon my life, or can I kind of pick and choose, or should I just look to the New Testament? And if we can loosen the requirements of the Old Testament, Does this mean that we can pick and choose what we want to believe about the New Testament? Is the the whole Bible authoritative over our lives or just parts of it or just what Jesus said? Or as some people think or many people think, it's just an old, outdated self-help book. Well, as we look to our passage in Matthew this morning, we'll seek to define our relationship with the Old Testament law by answering two questions. These are my two headings for, for the sermon this morning. One, what is Jesus' relationship to the law? And then two, what is a Christian's relationship to the law, to the Old Testament? And what type of law keeping does God require those in the citizens who are citizens of heaven? as we'll study this text together, we'll see that Christ does not come to abolish the law, but rather he fulfills it and that the law demands a righteousness that exceeds any of our ability to keep. Again, if you haven't been with us over uh, the summer so far, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we've seen that Jesus has come to inaugurate a new kingdom on earth. And he doesn't come to inaugurate his kingdom by overthrowing a government or joining a political party, but instead he does it by creating a people by his spirit, a people who repent of their sins, that that believe the gospel of grace and are called to be Christ's ambassadors until he comes again. And so here in Jesus' teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, he says he shows us what a citizen of heaven looks like on earth as we wait for the king to come. And just last week, as Luke mentioned, we, we looked at uh, that citizens of heaven are meant to be salt and light um, in the world. That we are to shine the light of the glory of God to all the world. And by doing so, we foreshadow his glory that is to come. And now as we come to our the next section of text, verses 17 to 20, you'll notice a, a major shift in, in content because Jesus here sets up what he's about to teach in the main body of his sermon. And our text this morning is a, is a preemptive introductory explanation of Jesus' view of the Old Testament to make certain that his disciples don't misinterpret the purpose of his teaching that we'll cover in the coming weeks. If you remember, citizens of heaven in Matthew verses 5 and 6 says, they, they hunger and thirst for righteousness in verse 10, citizens of heaven suffer for persecution's sake, for righteousness' sake. So Jesus, in the main body of his sermon, is going to tell us what the kingdom, of, kingdom righteousness truly looks like. And he's going to correct popular and faulty interpretations of the law and showing us what true righteousness demanded by God looks like in a citizen of heaven. And it's going to rub some people the wrong way. He's going to say some pretty extreme things. But before we get to Jesus' teaching on anger lust and divorce, we need to look at this introductory paragraph and answer the question, is Jesus going to uphold the Old Testament law, or is he about to repeal and replace it with the new teaching? Now, I I cannot understate the importance of this text that we're going to look at. Uh, One commentator that I was studying, and this is a paraphrase, he says, the ramifications of one's interpretation on this section of scripture are so numerous That the relation of the two testaments and the relationship between law and gospel hang in the balance. So, in other words, how you interpret this morning's section of scripture and how you understand Jesus' teaching on the Old Testament and the implications on your own life will either lead you towards right, joy-filled living in God and trusting in His Word, or it will lead you away from God and towards complete rejection of the authority of His Word. So then, let's start with the first question. What is Christ's relationship to the law? And First, we see Christ came to fulfill the law. Christ came to fulfill the law. Look at verse 17 with me. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. More than likely, again, Jesus was being criticized by his peers for a seemingly kind of willy-nilly attitude towards the law. And to the religious leaders, he seemed to completely disregard the Sabbath regulations by healing the sick on the Sabbath, as we see in Mark 1 and, and 3, and letting his disciples pluck heads of, of grain or corn on the Sabbath. Uh, and again, so these people, hey, no, Jesus, that's, that's unlawful. You, you ought not to do that. But Jesus here emphatically rejects that he is abolishing anything in the law. Right? He starts with, do not think or do not entertain, even entertain the idea that I have come to abolish or destroy the law and the prophets. And, and just to be clear, when, when Jesus says law and the prophets, he is referring to the whole of the Old Testament. Again, it was a common Jewish tradition to refer to the Old Testament in, in shorthand by saying law and prophets or the law of the prophets and the writings or sometimes even just the law. So Jesus here is making sure that there is no doubt in the minds of his hearers that when he teaches, he is not destroying or undoing the law, but rather he is fulfilling all that the law and the prophets pointed to. He is confirming that the Old Testament continues to accurately teach us about God, his character, and our utter need for grace when we are faced with the demands of the law. And Jesus isn't hitting the control Z button on the Old Old Testament manuscripts, or for those who don't know the shortcuts, that's the edit, undo button. He's not doing that. Now, but you may be asking yourself, like, well, Jesus, I, I hear what you're saying, but but what about that whole sacrificial system thing, right? Don't we read in Hebrews 7 through 9 that Christ's death on the cross was the final perfect sacrifice, ending the ceremonial and sacrificial system? You know, what about all those food regulations, Jesus, in, in Leviticus? Don't you say that in Mark 7 that all foods are, are now clean and that what goes into a person doesn't defile them, but what comes out of the person defiles them? I mean, does this mean that we we can't eat at red lobster anymore? I mean, didn't the tearing of the temple I mean, from top to bottom wasn't that a, wasn't didn't that symbolize that we didn't need to go through a priest anymore that we didn't need the temple anymore to gain access to you? Jesus, we're a little confused here. Well, the key to understanding Jesus' relationship to the old covenant is this word "fulfill" that we see in the scriptures, and and this word "fulfill" has a just a swath and depth of meaning, but most succinctly, it means that Jesus is the point and the purpose of everything that was written in the Old Testament. If you, if you have time to read all of Matthew's gospel, you'll see that fulfillment is a key throughout the book. Uh, Matthew uses the word fulfill 15 times to make sure his readers understand that Jesus has come to fulfill all that the Old Testament had said. Again, I don't have time to show you all of them, but I want you to show at least one. Uh, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 21, and you'll see at least one instance where Jesus is the consummation of all that the prophets predicted. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, says, She that being Mary will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And you'll see more references to fulfillment really close by in Matthew's gospel in, in chapter 2, verse 15, and 3, verse 15, and chapter 4, verse 14. And, and Jesus not only fulfills the numerous other predictive prophecies in the Old Testament, but he also fulfills the moral demands of the law by living a perfect life of obedience on our behalf he fulfills the meaning and purpose behind the entire sacrificial and ceremonial laws by offering his body on the tree as the perfect spotless Passover lamb putting an end to the need for another sacrifice he is the once sacrifice for all furthermore everything in all of Israel's history finds its understanding and fulfillment in Jesus We we see in Hebrews, he is the better prophet than Moses. He is the better priest than Samuel, and he is the better king than David. Christ does not abolish the law, nor does he add to the law. He does not intensify the law, but rather he tells us the true meaning of the law, and all the rules and the regulations find their purpose in him. Moreover, Jesus is saying that in verse 17, that the entire Old Testament, the entire New Testament, and really just all of human history is about him. He is the purpose of all creation. Again, the world, we tell our kids, you know, the world doesn't revolve around you, but we can tell them it revolves around somebody, and it revolves around Jesus, the one who made it and the one who sustains it. We cannot do away with the Old Testament because it all points to Jesus, and we can't understand the Old Testament without seeing it through the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has not come to abolish the Old Testament, but to shine more light on who God is and to make what to us maybe seems blurry and make it more clear. Growing up, uh, my dad always watched a bunch of old movies and history documentaries on the History Channel. And on Sunday afternoons, of course, not during football season, we'd come home after church, have our lunch, and he would take his spot on the couch, and he'd flip on a Turner Classic movie or an old war documentary. And of course, within like 10 minutes, he's out. And so I'm stuck watching, uh, (laughs) watching these old things. And, again, when you watch these old movies and you watch these old these old war scenes, again, a lot of the times when it's in black and white, it, it doesn't seem real, right? The, the, the scenes are kind of hard to connect with, and uh, especially for, you know, my, you know, I'm only 30 and I'm about to say I, I didn't grow up with a black and white TV, but at least I, I, I saw those. Uh, and recently, I don't know if you noticed, they, they've started to uh, digitally colorize these old movies or some of these old, uh, again, war films. Uh, and these, these uh, again, the, all the battle scenes that had been taken in World War II. And I, I watched one recently, World War II in color. And it's, it's amazing what happens when what color does. It, it brings that, that scene to life. Again, you can see the dirt on the faces of these guys. You can see, again, the, the terror in their, in their faces. You can see, again, they, these, are, these are real people. This, this really happened. You can see their humanity maybe for the, for the first time. You know, which, which, what, what seemed lifeless now comes to life. Well, the black, if we say the Old Testament is kind of in black and white, you know, it doesn't mean that that footage was, was fundamentally untrue or misleading. But when Jesus came, he clarified what was already there. He took what was grainy and blurry and made the picture crystal clear as he began to fulfill all that was foreshadowed about him. And church, I want you to hear this. Christians today, we we must affirm and understand the relationship between the Old and New Testaments or we risk falling for a gospel that is found in neither New or Old Testament. Theologians over the centuries have come up with other helpful ways to think about the relationship between these testaments. Augustine in the fourth century says this, he says, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Or J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors, says the Old Testament is the gospel in bud, the New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are not at odds with one another. Jesus doesn't redefine the character of God, but embodies his perfect character. Jesus even boldly says, right, in, in John's Gospel, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And since God does not change, the Gospel does not change. All people in all times have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Jesus comes to fulfill the law. Secondly, we see in verse 18 that Jesus upholds the law. Jesus affirms the enduring authority of the law. Look at verse 18 with me. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The religious leaders, again, here who are challenging Jesus' commitment to the authority of the law come to find out that Jesus has a higher view of the law than they do. Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear that he affirms the authority and the inspiration of God's word without qualification, right? He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not one of God's words will be dissolved. In other words, again, all that the scriptures prophesied will be fulfilled and all that God had ordained the scriptures to accomplish will be completed, not even the tiniest letter or stroke of the pen will pass away. John Stott says, the word of God is enduring as the universe itself. Now, translated here, that this uh, iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. But when Jesus is speaking, he's speaking in Aramaic. So he, he is uh, likely referring to a yod, which is the tiniest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the language the Old Testament was, was written in. And the yod is, again, a really small letter. It looks like an inverted comma And after the service, if you want to know what a yod looks like, I've gotten permission from him, but but Luke has a nice little yod, you know, tattooed on his wrist, you know, some Hebrew. And so if you want to see what a yod looks like, you can go ask Luke and he can show you what, how small it is. Uh, One scholar estimates that there are 66,000 yods in the Old Testament and Jesus says not one little yod is going to pass away. Additionally, this, this dot or stroke, or if you have the King James Version, this tittle that Jesus is referring to is this is a tiny hook or as a tiny line that differentiates two different Hebrew letters. In English terms, he's pretty much saying, "Not the dot of an I or a crossing of the T will pass away from the law until all is accomplished." Jesus is affirming here that in order to be my disciple, in order to be a citizen of heaven, you need to embrace all of God's words, every Yoda, every dot. You can't tell Jesus that Deuteronomy you know, has no use for you in 2018. Because if you see in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy three times in order to resist the temptations of the devil. Dissing Deuteronomy is just not going to fly with Jesus. You cannot embrace Jesus without embracing his teaching. You cannot claim to love Jesus without loving his word also. Jesus is never in opposition to the scriptures because everything in the scriptures point to Jesus. He affirms here all of God's words, have an enduring authority in our lives. And that is why here at College Park Castle we are committed to preaching through books of the Bible, why we are committed to singing the Bible together, why we pray the Bible together, and why we teach our children the whole counsel of God. Because we believe in the authority and the inerrancy and the inspiration of all 66 books of the Bible because Jesus believed that. Therefore, we also need to see them as authoritative, as an errand, as sufficient and necessary for us to know God, to know ourselves, and to know how we can be saved from sin. So I must ask you today, church, do you have the same confidence in the scriptures that Jesus has here? When you're asked at work or at school about what you believe, the Bible says, what will your answer be? And maybe when, when your desires or your passions conflict with the Bible's commands, will you stand on the authority of your feelings or the authority of the word of God? Will you pick and choose what parts of the scriptures you want to follow, or will you embrace everything that Jesus taught? Will you see the Bible as your only source of comfort and temptation as Jesus did, or will you see it as a source of condemnation? Again, since Jesus has the utmost confidence in the scriptures, we ought to be confident in our scriptures. Additionally, we ought to work hard at understanding how Jesus wants us to read our Bibles in light of all that he has fulfilled. So that when we are asked to defend our faith, we can have confidence resting upon the living and abiding word of God. So when you come to those long genealogies, and you come to the food laws and the difficult parts of your Bible reading, we ought not to skip over them, We ought to pray and ask God to show us the light of the glory of Jesus that is found in those pages. That we might see more clearly the price of our redemption. There's a little plug uh, in in August, um, uh, on Friday mornings, where I'm going to start doing a a Bible study through Hebrews. And Hebrews is a great text uh, that helps us see the connection between Christ and the Old Testament and Christ uh, in, in the new. It's for men in the morning, 6.30 to 7.30. And so we've seen here that Jesus' relationship with the law is not one of abolishing but of fulfilling, and that he upholds the authority and the inspiration of the law. And now we come to verses 19 and 20, to how Christians are to relate to the law. What is a Christian's relationship to the law? In verse 19, we see Christians need to keep and teach the commandments of God. Christians need to keep and teach the commandments of God. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Like Anytime you, you're reading scriptures and you see a therefore, right, you ought to pause and say, hey, what is the therefore therefore, right? So in our passage, the therefore reveals a vital connection between Jesus' relationship towards the law and our relationship towards the law. It reveals a connection between the law of God and the kingdom of God, <clears throat> a connection between Jesus' attitude towards the scriptures and what our attitude ought to be towards the scriptures. Since Jesus came to fulfill the law and every every word uh, of God's word will not pass away, therefore greatness in the kingdom of God will be measured by obedience and commitment to teaching all that God commands. Jesus says, again, we can't relax or loosen or soften or cut corners on the tiniest part of God's law, or we will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. When, when Jesus here is speaking of relaxing uh, the least of these commandments, he's addressing the common distinction uh, made between the lesser matters of the law and the weightier matters of the law. If, if you want to flip over to Matthew twenty three, twenty three, and you'll see Jesus make this distinction. Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So the Pharisees, they were, they were great at portioning out 10% of their, their little mint or their little dill or their little cumin. They're very exact about that but they fail to uphold the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And Jesus is saying that that while all of God's commandments are a package deal, as we read in James, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point is accountable for it all, yet not all of the law's violations are the same in God's eyes. There are more weightier matters to the law, like upholding justice and mercy or remaining faithful to God or to your spouse. But Jesus says in our text that even if you try to cut corners on the Least of these commandments, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. When I was in seminary, I, I worked as a server as a uh, in an upscale kind of steakhouse in Louisville to pay my way through through school. And this restaurant was known for its exceptional service, and I found out why uh, my first week there. I needed to go through five rigorous days of training and. Tests. I needed to memorize every ingredient of every dish, every seasoning, every drink, every detail of the menu. In addition to memorizing all that, I got followed along by by a trainer who would who would watch me and making sure that I was doing everything I needed to do, to make sure I hit every point of service. And the restaurant would also have regular secret shoppers come in to. The restaurant. <clears throat> these are these are people that look regular people, but they're they're taking notes and they're making sure that uh, the servers are serving at the standard that the restaurant has trained them at. So the question is, why would they have these secret shoppers come in if they trained us so well on on the front end? Well, this restaurant knew human nature very well uh, that over time that people would look right to cut corners. They could figure out what they could get away with. And if time goes on, if they they aren't up to date on the menu and they're missing different points of service, they know that over time, this is going to hurt the reputation of the restaurant. The reputation of this restaurant would be at stake. In a similar way, if God's people begin to ease up on even the least commands, the lesser commands, and teach our families and friends to do the same, we will fail to be faithful ambassadors of the king. And we will rob ourselves of joy of serving the king and it will be called least in the kingdom. And if you don't care whether or not you're least or greatest in the kingdom, we ought to ask ourselves, are we even in the kingdom at all? Church, we need to be careful not to alter God's word in order to make God's call for holiness more palatable to the world or less restrictive for ourselves. Because we are constantly teaching others, whether we realize or not, what we believe about God and how seriously we ought to take his commands. We are surely, again, saved by grace, and it's not through law-keeping, but are we cheapening God's grace by running back to what Christ saved us from and teaching others to do the same? We have to ask ourselves, are we happy simply avoiding the weighty public sins, yet daily neglecting the lesser matters of the law in secret and slowly losing our integrity? Parents, are you allowing things into your home that teach your children that it's okay to relax some of the commandments of God? And are you diligent to pour the right commands of God into your children so that they can understand with a biblical worldview what the culture is teaching and divide right from wrong? Church is the way you talk and carry yourself around your friends and your co-workers. Tell others that as long as you avoid the big sins and just go to church, that God is pleased with you. Do we desire to make a great impact for the kingdom of God, or are we just content sitting on the bench? Again, ignoring God's lesser commandments reveals a heart that misunderstands God's holiness and that we are using other people as our standard for goodness rather than having God as our standard. Our desire to keep and teach God's commandments, again, shouldn't flow from a heart that wants to prove ourselves to others, but rather out of a genuine love for God and his word, believing what the psalmist says, that the law of the Lord is perfect and it revives the soul. Or as Jesus says, and come to me all you are weary and heavy burden, I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My commandments are not burdensome. Do we believe that? So what is the Christians relationship to the law? Christians need to keep it and teach it all. Number two, Christians need a greater righteousness. Christians need a greater righteousness. Look at verse twenty with me. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For those of us who grew up in in church, uh, when we hear scribes and Pharisees, right, it's pretty easy to say, ooh, ooh, Pharisees bad, ooh, scribes bad. I don't want to be. I don't. want I don't want to be like them, right? It's easy to to think that. But before we go. Too far down that road, we need to put this statement into context, right? In those days, the scribes were the experts in the law. It was their profession to spend their lives studying and memorizing the scriptures, and they were held in the highest of esteem in society. And many of the scribes, again, were also Pharisees, and the Pharisees were a Jewish sect that were committed to the strictest observance of the law. They had even calculated the number of laws that it contained two hundred and forty-eight commandments and 365 prohibitions, and they sought to keep every one of them. Furthermore, they, they added regulations to the law to make sure they didn't even break a commandment. So, for instance, they said, hey, you can only walk a thousand steps on the Sabbath to make sure that we're not breaking uh, the commandment not to, to work or to, to rest in the Sabbath as they, they saw it. It was said in those days that if only two men were to go to heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. So when Jesus calls his disciples to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes, of the Pharisees, their re- the hearer's reaction was most likely, well, well then how can, how can anyone be saved? They're, they're the most righteous people in all of Israel. If anyone should be let in the kingdom, it should be them. They even tithe their, their dill, their mint, their cumin. How can we exceed that standard? Again, like in our context, Jesus is saying that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the missionary or the martyr, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yet, the righteousness that Jesus is calling us to is not of quantity, but rather of quality. The scribes and Pharisees kept 604 of the 613 commandments. Jesus is not asking us to keep 605 commandments. Rather, he is calling us to possess a quality of righteousness that comes from the heart, a righteousness that exceeds out of the scribes and pharisees again just to be clear the the problem with the scribes and pharisees was not that they cared too much about the law again we we never in all the gospels we never see jesus criticize them for caring about the law too much yet we see jesus rebuke them for their motives for their law keeping instead of obeying the law out of love for god and for his glory they kept the law for their own glory they were man pleasers instead of god glorifiers they robbed God of his glory by practicing their righteousness before others so that they would receive the praise of man. They followed the letter of the law, but failed to follow the spirit of the law that God had asked them. They made sure they, they tithed their little spices, but they failed to show mercy and compassion to the poor and to the hungry. In the Good Samaritan passage, right? About to say, Jesus says, love your neighbor, and the Pharisee wants to get around. He says, well, who's my neighbor? He's trying to figure out who does he not have to love and who he does love. They're trying to get around this instead of obeying the heart of what God had asked them to. And later in, in Matthew 23, the Pharisees are called whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but inside there was only death and decay. They were what many of us, again, would call legalists, right? They, could, they thought they could earn God's favor through their good works instead of trusting in God to help them obey, and they obeyed from their own strength. They thought if they could just study hard enough, work hard enough to keep the law, that God would accept them. Yet this is not the righteousness that gets you into the kingdom. The true righteousness that Jesus calls for is a righteousness of the heart. Jesus requires his disciples to keep the commands of God and walk obedience for the right reasons. He wants his disciples to have a heart that loves God's law because they love the lawgiver, And we begin to understand the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees when we realize that God doesn't want us to check the boxes of our church attendance or our weekly offering or our prayers before dinner if we're going to use them to justify ourselves before God. He doesn't want that. Citizens of heaven realize that God... Doesn't want our outward conformity, but rather he wants our thoughts, our actions, and our hearts to be wholly conformed to his word. Too often, I think we we pat ourselves on the back, and I'm, I'm guilty of this myself for patting ourselves on the, for our good works when we look around us uh, and say, "I'm pretty good," you know, I look better than this guy, and I'm I'm not on the TV, and I'm not in jail. But when we dig a little deeper we see that our motives for our obedience spring from a desire to please men or out of fear of man, not out of love for God. Pastor Dan Doriani gives a pretty convicting example. He says, some men boast of their fidelity to their wives, but when we get to know them, we realize that they are faithful only because they cannot find a willing partner or are afraid to get caught. Some men handle large sums of money, money faithfully but only because they know competent auditors visit regularly. The world is full of people who never did anything really bad because they never had a chance. Jesus expects his disciples to do the right things for the right reasons, not out of fear of calculation, but out of love for God and man. Jesus is saying that if we want to be in his kingdom, we need to possess a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees in in quality, not in quantity. We need a righteousness of the heart. And when we realize what Jesus is really asking us, and we examine our hearts rightly, and we see our hearts for what they are, we ought to respond just the way Jesus' original hearers did. Then who can be saved? How can anyone live up to your standard, Jesus? And the correct answer to that question, right, is no one. Not one of us can do what Jesus is asking us to do. And yet, it's then when we realize that we have no ability in ourselves to live up to God's standard that we know what it truly means when Jesus has said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's then we realize when we finally see the wickedness of our own hearts that we see see our need for a new heart. A heart that says, heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. It's then we realize when we can't save ourselves that we see our need for a Savior. A Savior that the prophets foretold would come. A Savior who would be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. A Savior who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. A Savior who would be pierced for our transgressions. Who would be crushed for our iniquities. A Savior who would take upon himself all the requirements of the law. And by his wounds, we would be healed. And for all who trust in this Savior, God gives them a new heart. A heart that loves all of God's words. And longs to keep his commandments because it brings glory to God. And it brings them much joy. friends, how would you define your relationship with Jesus today? Do you see him as your savior? Do you see your need for his saving grace? Or do you just see him as a good teacher? Church, how would you define your relationship with his word? Do you love all his words or just some of them? And if you see him as savior and you trust in his word, does your life truly reflect it? Does the grace that flowed into you at the cross flow out of you towards others so that they can see your good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are overcome by the weight of your call upon our hearts. Lord, we know that there is nothing inside of us that can make us right with you. Lord, we need you to give us a new heart, a heart that longs for you, that loves you, and to know that the true joy that we can have by following your commands. Lord Jesus, if there's anybody in this room who has not been given this new heart, but now longs, to obey God Lord would you by your spirit give them a new heart that longs to care for you that longs to love you Lord for those of us who may have been a Christian for a long time and yet either we are now trying to earn our salvation by good works and trusting ourselves Lord would you forgive us Jesus, for those of us who are crushed by the weight of the law, may we find rest and fulfillment in you, knowing that you have taken all our sins, that you've obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf, and that we can have a clean conscience before you this morning. Lord, what a wondrous mystery it is of your Son and all that he has done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.